0: Uh, My name is Norman Fisher. I'm a local Zen guy from down the road. And uh, maybe uh, many of you were here tonight expecting Jack. And Jack, I think, was scheduled to speak, right? And uh, uh, he just called me this morning, actually, and said that he wasn't going to be able to come and, and could I show up instead. So I apologize to those of you who were expecting him. And uh, I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what, uh, why he couldn't come, but I know that he's much involved in the protests and, uh, around the Burma issue that we've been hearing about. And so it was great to talk to him about what's going on. He's really immersed in it. Um, and uh, it, it appears that um, the Burmese government is trying to throw a blanket over what's going on there. So it's not at all, we don't know. Uh, The internet cafes are being shut down and hard to get news. But uh, Jack says that he's been talking to people all over the world about this and he's very confident that uh, expressions of support for the monks and dismay over the situation from all around the world will have an impact and will certainly be encouraging to the people in Burma who are struggling uh, for uh, some justice and peace. So uh, I actually feel really encouraged that Jack is so great, don't you think? <laughs> he, he really is. Uh, he, when something like this happens, he really gets activated and he, and he just doesn't rest until everything that can be done is done. I feel fortunate to, to know him and, and I'm sure you all do too. And so uh, this is what i 'm doing to filling in for I feel like i 'm contributing by filling in for him tonight, and you are too by by coming and, and, and sharing this uh, space together, in which i 'm sure all of us have these have these same concerns uh, I said uh, that I was very happy uh, when I arrived because uh, I just had the most uh, joyful and wonderful drive here, you know, from Muir Beach where I live. For one thing, uh, when I was going through uh, San Anselmo, uh, I looked up and you know, there are many one doesn't notice them, but there are many phone wires going across the, the road. And there was a little Squirrel scurrying across the, the the phone wire, just underneath my car. Just I could just look and see him going by, or her, and she or he uh, slipped, and and, <laughs> and was just about to fall down, you know, to uh, her peril and. Just at the last moment, grabbed onto the wire and scurried across the other way, and that was really a wonderful thing to see. That this squirrel uh, was so skillful and so just at the last minute—it was really something. And then uh, also, I was—I uh, was listening to a, a CD of, of a talk by uh, Meg Porter Alexander, who's one of the uh, priests in our in our little. Everyday Zen Sangha, the group that I uh, have organized and work with. And uh, so when one of the priests in our group gives a talk and I'm not able to go, they often send me the CD and I get to listen to it. And so I was doing that in the car. And it was particularly wonderful uh, Dharma talk because it was given at a women's retreat, all, all women uh, attending the retreat. So I felt like you know, I got to listen in to this very intimate <laughs> discussion uh, By a woman dharma teacher to a women's group and she said a couple of things in there that really I thought were the most wonderful things one thing she said was that she said uh, it's a rare thing we all naturally quite natural we turn away from difficulty when something is difficult the most natural thing in the world is to try to go somewhere else or get out of it or forget about it or something And she said, it's so unusual to find someone who has the habit of mind of turning toward what's difficult instead of away. And she said, that's what uh, our practice helps us to do, to turn toward what's difficult instead of away. And and she said, and and that's why I married my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Because because he was someone who, who really, she could see, who really instead of turning away from difficulty, would turn toward it. And she said, and that's been a great thing. They've been married many, many years, and that's been a great thing in our marriage, that when there's difficulty, instead of turning away, he turns toward it, and he's willing to do that. And she said, that's really good. And then the other thing that she said, which really uh, was so touching to me, so beautiful, uh, she said that, uh, and, and this is, she said about women, but, I don't know. So it's true of her for sure, because I know her really well. She said, uh, "We women have such uh, what, I don't forget the word she used. Such uh, rich, maybe that was the word, rich emotional lives." She said, and, and she said, and the practice, uh, meditation practice, and the process of dharma really helps us to feel more poignantly and more with, with greater clarity and beauty. Those emotional lives, and I thought that was such a beautiful thing to say, and something that probably uh, would be said and more likely to be said in a women 's retreat than in a mixed group, even though it's true, you know all, all the time. Uh, but it was, it was wonderful to, to hear that, and that just so, so moved me. And then uh, today, I, I, you know since I didn't have time to prepare a talk, I'm just telling you what, I was, what I've been doing today. <laughs> so I have nothing else to tell you. <laughs> uh, uh, this morning uh, I was at a uh, I was doing a funeral uh, and um, a funeral for uh, a person who i would known many years in the Zen community wonderful, wonderful man who uh, very uh, vital and strong got ALS you know, Lou Gehrig's disease terrible, terrible uh, illness, but um, but faced it, you know, in such a fantastic way, and uh, you know, said things like, you know, what a gift this illness has been, because I never felt so deeply for everyone in my life the way I feel now. And somebody afterward said to me, she said, yeah, that's right. Every time you went to visit him at the end, you couldn't understand what he was saying. As you left, he would always say something. And finally, you got it. Because, you know, you lose your ability to speak. And so everything goes when you have that disease. And she said, I finally got it that he was saying to each and every person as they left, I love you. You know, so. It was a really, um... Many people got up and gave eulogies for him. He was, um... He was an eye doctor, and, and it, actually a, a great eye doctor. He wrote a dozen, something like a dozen textbooks, and was well known all over the world for his, his uh, pioneering work. And in the 1980s, he went to uh, India to work with uh, people with leprosy who have, whose eyes go bad, you know, from the disease. And uh, he came back and, and he said, um, I thought I was going there to help these people, that I was bringing you know, this brilliant technology and, and knowledge to help these people, but I was much more helped than they were because I saw, even though they were impoverished and even though their lives were very difficult and even though they you know, had this illness in their midst, they were happy much happier than the people that I know at home. And he went back year after year for many, many years and took care of them. And uh, so it was a beautiful uh, service uh, and uh, also very sad. So that was so far today than yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday uh, I had a, a retreat uh, and Cindy was there. Hi, Cindy. <laughs> Cindy was there, and and, uh, and maybe somebody else out there was there. I can't see everybody, but um, it, it was the beginning. Every year we have an annual period of time. It's a tradition in Zen to have what they call uh, ango periods or practice periods, a special time of the year when you. It's it's it comes from the old tradition that you have in Theravada Buddhism with the rains retreat. So we have these periods that we designate every year, and we usually do it in the fall from September through the end of November, and it's a time for renewal. We say, whatever our practice is, however long we've been practicing or or however short we've been practicing, today we're starting over again. We're starting again, and we're going to make a new commitment, and we're going to renew our practice, and and we're going to begin. We're going to begin. So it's a wonderful, upbeat feeling. And, and Meg Porter-Alexander, the same woman whose CD I was telling you about, she's the head monk of the practice period. So the, we began the day with a ceremony, a traditional ceremony, in which um, she's installed as the head monk. And uh, part of the ceremony is that, uh, you know, in Zen we're very humble. You know, we, we practice being very humble. So uh, the way the ceremony goes is that, the person is invited to be the head monk and then she comes and makes prostrations to the altar and then she says, no, I can't do this, it's too hard for me. And then she leaves. And then the teacher says, well, wait, 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 please come back. And There's this dialogue where you try to talk them into it. And eventually, of course, they say, yes, okay, I'll do it. So we were having this dialogue and... Um, in the middle of the dial i could you know i didn't know what to say i was trying to think of something to say and i had my eyes closed and while my eyes were closed she was walking away she seemed like she almost was gone and i just at the last minute was able to get her to come back anyway practice period is renewal starting over again and it was a wonderful wonderful day a new beginning and that was sunday and saturday <laughs> Saturday, I was in the mountains doing a wedding. Busy couple days, you know, in the mountains doing a wedding. And um, the night before, it snowed. It was an outdoor wedding, and it snowed. It was really cold up in the mountains. It snowed. And we woke up in the morning, it was really cold, and there was snow everywhere. But by the time, Uh, The time for the ceremony rolled around. Three o'clock, the snow had melted, and we had a beautiful, beautiful wedding uh, in in a small sort of pocket meadow overlooking a valley and mountains. Beautiful young couple uh, from San Francisco. Uh, The young woman grew up in the Zen community. She was a little... We knew her, you know, when she was born and when she was a little tiny child, and our our children played with her, and so we've always (laughs) known her. So it was lovely to do that wedding. So, this is how it is: uh, life, death, beginnings, endings, losses, joy, happiness, sorrow. It's all there, you know. Every every single day, all of life turns round and round and round in this great circle. That none of us really understand, none of us can see. But all of us are inside of it, and all of us are, are living it. We are that circle, all of it, and that circle is us. And in the midst of all this, for no good reason... There's all the oppression and violence that we human beings have, since the beginning of time, been perpetrating on one another. We we seem to do this always. Why why do we do this to one another? Who who benefits? Who gets something out of this? It's a mystery. You know why why is this so compelling? The victims suffer, and so do the perpetrators. So we're all aware now of the situation in, in Burma. Who knows? Who knows what the lives of the elite members of the Burmese military junta are like? Who knows what motivates them? Who knows who they are? We we really don't know. Who knows what? thoughts and feelings that people in our government have when they invade foreign countries and get enmeshed in brutality that is nearly impossible to extricate oneself from. But, but it, we really can't say that it's about this person or that person or this one's fault or that one's fault. The real fault, you know, is not a person, but the confusion and the violence and the fear that is always in the middle of the human heart. It's the legacy of the terror and the suffering throughout the generations in our households, in our families, in our clans, in our nations. And it's so dismaying, you know, and so... Shocking. If you pay attention at all, uh, you can have a great sorrow about it. And what do we do about it? What do we do about it? I think that uh, the Buddha's teaching does address it. First of all, uh, we find the poison and the fear in our own hearts. And You know, as I was saying, we don't want to go there. We want to turn away. We don't want to turn toward what's difficult. So we have to train ourselves not to do what's natural, to run away, to look the other way, but to look back, to turn back and look. To feel uh, the wounds that we've suffered. To feel uh, the dysfunction within us that arises as a consequence of our wounds. And to learn how to be really honest and and patient with it all. To learn that we don't need to run away. And we also don't need to fix it. We need to let it come and go and be fully present with it. And if we will do that, that eventually uh, the strength of the goodness within us will bring healing to us. And and through the very uh, fear and terror and sorrow and wounding, we will understand our life and we will be able to forgive ourselves and, and others. And then we'll learn how to act in all our words and deeds out of love and concern for others rather than out of our fear and our self-need and our self-preservation. And this really is our practice, to learn how to turn toward what's in our hearts. Let it be there. Let it come. Let it go. Let a process unfold within us so that we will act differently in everything that we say and do and we'll forgive and we'll be have some kindness and and of course you know this is not enough this is a beginning but it's not enough <coughs> also uh, we have to develop the skills to remake this world So that in the future, the structures of our governments and economies will no longer automatically favor wealth over poverty and power over justice. Right now, with the structures that are so deeply embedded in our world, it's almost impossible to turn things around. We have to work at the very root of our world. And this is an enormous, overwhelming undertaking. And, and I have no idea how we'll ever be able to do such a thing, but I know that we, we must. And I feel happy about the prospects, you know, because, again, uh, first of all, at uh, our sitting, uh, at our retreat on, on Sunday, uh, the first thing is that, you know, we, I, we have a group in Mexico... And some of the people from the group uh, came to visit, and they were there on Sunday. And there was a young woman in the group who also uh, lived with us as a child, and we were very, very, very close to her. And she was pregnant, and she had a great big belly, and she was so glowing and so happy. And I thought, oh boy, you know, what a bright future. And then there was a young man at the retreat also from India and he had been, uh, when I was abbot at Green Gulch, he was a farm apprentice, and I remember him well. Very earnest, capable, energetic guy. And he came in to see me in an interview. And I said, what are you doing now? He said, "I'm, I'm back home in India, and I'm working on the question of hunger. And this is my passion. I want to find a way to end hunger in India. And he said, I have a question for you. I said, what's, what's the question? He said, how can we work with rich and powerful people whose actions and decisions have so much impact on the poor? How do we change their behavior? How do we influence them for the good? I thought, wow, you know, what a question. What a fantastic question. And he meant it, you know from the bottom of his heart of course you know, I don't have the answer to this question so instead of trying to answer his question I thanked him uh, for the work that he was doing and, and my, I expressed you know, my appreciation and my gratitude for people in his generation because he's not the only one that I know in that generation who he's, he's decided that, that the best thing for him to do now is to become a person who works on policy. So he's going to get some more education so that he can influence and affect policy. And I know several young people, including one of our own children, who are passionate about working uh, in policy so that at the bottom and the root of things, policies will be different. And, and, and doing it with a practical, real-world sensibility... And that's what Babu, this man from India, said that he was going to do. (laughs) And so I know that even though I probably won't see it myself and I have no idea how it's going to happen, I actually feel pretty sure that things will change for the good in the generation coming and beyond when we know for sure that justice is our motivation, and that peacefulness is our commitment and our method, we can rest assured, absolutely assured, that one way or another, in time, things are going to change. And we need to be just patient and and steady, 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 steady uh, with our good action. And then there are times like now when even all of this is not enough, uh, like the situation in Burma. Uh, I'm sure that you feel like I do how how proud you feel uh, of the monks in Burma, how impressed you are with the way that they're doing this. It makes you feel you know really good to be practicing Dharma and and to see you know that. That the commitment to practice not only for oneself but especially for the benefit of others is at the heart of what we're doing. I know several years ago I I met a Burmese monk at some sort of a meeting or conference and I remember trying to talk to him about the situation in Burma and he wouldn't talk about it. Monks have been forbearing and silent for a long time but now no more they're peacefully and in the, completely in the spirit of their practice going onto the streets and saying without saying it directly maybe always but saying it by their presence no no not for one more day can we endure uh, this repression and injustice? And, you know, of course, we have to remember always, you know, we have no idea what's going on or why or how. You know, the news is very spotty and m- much of it is inaccurate. But we can imagine and we can feel uh, that the monks are, are marching and risking their lives not for themselves, they're probably well taken care of, the monks. But out of sympathy for uh, the lay sangha, people in the villages and in the towns who are suffering, they're risking not only their own lives, but the whole religious establishment that's so central to them and to the whole Burmese culture. And so uh, we're not there and we can't maybe help them uh, directly but we can help them by our words and deeds here and I think by our uh, sense of support for them, our prayers for them and our, and our resolve to do whatever we have in our world that can be done uh, to support them. So I thought maybe uh, now we could just take a few moments to uh, practice uh, a meditation. And uh, I, I invite you to practice this, but I also want to make it clear that uh, if you if you don't feel comfortable with this practice, uh, and, and not everybody does, to just uh, feel uh, completely permission to just breathe and be quiet and not, not feel you have to do it. Because it's not an easy practice. It's the practice of being willing to accept uh, the suffering of others. Being willing to take in the suffering of others. So we begin uh, the practice with coming to our body and our breath as we always do in meditation, quieting our mind and resting uh, our mind and our heart in the pure uh, nature of life, the pure nature of what is. And now, uh, if you would like, you can imagine in your mind's eye the many thousands of, of monks in Burma, many of whom have been beaten and frightened, jailed. Imagine their fear, their physical wounds, the deprivation they feel in the jails where they are. Imagine the villagers who have been suffering for so long. And when you breathe in, uh, breathe in all of that Uh, Grief and fear and oppression. Just let yourself breathe it in completely. And when you breathe out, uh, breathe out peace and well-being and relief. As if through your own body uh, you could take in literally all of this anguish. And by the power of your own practice, of your own body, of your own breath, of your own heart, you could transform it uh, into goodness so that when you breathe out, uh, there's peace and there's lightness. And the hearts of all these people uh, find some ease with your practice of breathing in the suffering and breathing out relief. So let's practice that way for a few moments. Now you can uh, let go of that and just return to your breathing, resting again in the unconditioned nature of your own body and mind that is inherently uh, peaceful and accepting. And now uh, let yourself get into touch with your own uh, essential strength of goodness. It's always feels so good to do something of benefit to another person, for another person. We all feel that. To be friendly, uh, to be kind, to be helpful. It's a wonderful feeling. It's natural to us. So let yourself get in touch with that place in yourself that really and truly wants to be that way. Feel that place uh, in your heart. <coughs> and with your breath, uh, make that place clearer and stronger. Breathe it into brightness. And if you want to, resolve that you'll never, ever lose track of that place within yourself. That you'll devote yourself to strengthening it and never going astray from it. That whatever happens, you'll keep this bright place in your heart. Uh, Jack's been very much on my mind these days b- because um, maybe you know uh, that he's written a new book. Do you know this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been working on this for years. And uh, it's it's finished. Here it is. <laughs> I was sent uh, a manuscript copy uh, so that I could uh, comment on it. and I, So I've been in all my spare moments, you know, reading it. And I thought that since I couldn't think of anything to say, and th- since Jack was supposed to be here anyway, and since this is such a great book, I would, I would give you, you're the first people to get the advanced quotation from, from Jack's book. No, really, this, it's, it's, it's his whole life's work, I think. Kind of drawn together. It's a book. Uh, it's really about Buddhist psychology, and you know all the experience that Jack has in, in in Buddhist practice and the practice of so many others who've shared their lives with him and his psych- psychological training. Uh, he's really uniquely qualified to 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 make a, a you know a big summary statement of Buddhist psychology and how it can really help our lives, and that's what this book is about. And. Very difficult undertaking. I know. I've been talking to him over the years as he's been writing it, and many times he said, "Oh, I wish I never would have started this. It's so hard," yeah. and it was hard. You know, it really was a hard road. But but he, he but he did it, and uh, and it's marvelous. So uh, this is uh, a little bit from chapter fourteen: beyond hatred to a non-contentious heart. One of the delightful features of the book is that uh, he often, throughout the book, he, he tells stories of Ajahn Shah, his, his original teacher. And you really get a, a lovely portrait of the, the personality of Ajahn Shah, and it appears here just a little bit. <laughs> to learn about anger and aggression, Ajahn Shah encouraged us to look unflinchingly at our own experience whenever it arose. The instructions were to start small. He wanted us to notice the initial movement of aversion, the sense of dissatisfaction, resentment, and judgment as we went through the day. How does it arise, he would ask us. Is it caused by outer things or by habit, bodily instincts, a story in the mind, how? One day I found myself getting quite angry at being treated unfairly by a senior monk. Ajahn Shah just laughed. Good, he said. You can see how anger works. He instructed me to go back to my little hut in the forest, close the door and window, put on all my robes, and sit and be angry. It was the middle of the hot season, And it was like sitting in a fire, hot outside, even hotter inside. I could feel my anger at the situation, the seething body states, the aggression coming in waves. I noticed the fear that came too fear of the other person, fear of what I might do, fear of repeating the past, fear of my shame. My study of anger and fear continued for months. I saw how fear is never about what is actually here, in the moment. When pain and hurt are present, they are just pain and hurt. Fear adds to insecurity about what will come later. It comes as a scary story that takes over the body and mind. Fear would tell its story a hundred times, and until I could just notice, is that you, fear? I would be caught every time. Along with anger and fear, I learned the ways of the inner critic, the judging mind. I could hear myself repeating the critical words of my parents, of teachers, and of spiritual authorities. I had so many judgments. One of my teachers had me count them. I judged my pain, my wandering mind, the noises I heard, the bugs, the monastery, the whole world. There were a hundred judgments in an hour. I saw how quickly my anger could turn into blame of others and when turned on myself into embarrassment and shame. It was like Jules Pfeiffer's cartoon of the man who says, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. Hatred and aversion are all states of mind that strike against experience, pushing it away, rejecting what is presented in the moment. They do not come from without. This insight is a reversal of the ordinary way we perceive life. Usually, says Ajahn Chah, we believe outer problems attack us. Things are wrong and people misbehave, causing our hatred and suffering to arise. But however painful our experience may be they are just painful however painful our experiences may be they are just painful experiences until we add the response of hatred and aversion only then does suffering arise if we react with hatred and aversion these qualities become habitual like a distorted autoimmune response our misguided reaction of hatred does not protect us it becomes the cause of our continued unhappiness. This is the 14th principle of Buddhist psychology. And he throughout the book, he does this. He gives principles so that you, you can actually... The book is very meant to be very useful as a practice tool because you can see what these principles are and come to understand them through his discussion of them. So the 14th principle he cites is, if we cling to hatred or anger, we will suffer. If we... If we perpetrate violence, we will suffer. The one who... Jack's not saying this, I'm saying this. The one who perpetrates violence is as much to be sorrowed over as the one who's the victim of it. It is possible to respond strongly, wisely, and compassionately without hatred. And that's the only way we're going to remake this world when we respond to aggression and injustice in that way the Buddha declares enraged with hate with mind ensnared humans aim at their own ruin and at the ruin of others how do we break this tragic legacy both in our own lives and in every blood-soaked corner of the globe only through a deep understanding of anger hatred and aggression They are universal energies, archetypal forces which cause immense suffering in the world. Their source must be traced in the depths of our human hearts. And then we will discover an amazing truth. That with compassion, with courage and dedicated effort, we, like the Buddha, can meet the aggressive forces of Mara and these energies can be transformed by meeting them, not by defeating them or beating them up, but by meeting them, they are transformed. As we have seen, Freud and his followers believed the aggressive instincts to be primary. Cultures, and this is a quotation, I guess, from Freud, culture's ideal command to love one's neighbor as oneself is really justified by the fact that nothing is so completely at variance with original human nature as this. Later, in the aftermath of World War II, the sociobiologists like Conrad Lorenz and Robert Ardry (coughs) hypothesized that our species, like our predecessor apes and many other animals, had necessary and inevitable instincts of territoriality and aggression. Today, evolutionary biology and neuroscience are carefully charting the genetic function and neural mechanisms of aggression. But... The fact that aggression, anger and aversion are built into our universal heritage is only the starting point. It's the starting point of Buddhist psychology. After we learn how to face them directly to see how they arise and function in our life we must take a revolutionary step. Through the profound practice of insight through non-identification and compassion, we must reach down into the very synapses and cells and free ourselves from the grasp of these instinctive forces. With dedication, we discover it is possible to do so. Hatred and aversion almost always arise as a direct reaction to a threatening or painful situation. As we have seen... Pain and loss are undeniable parts of human life. Buddhist texts speak of a mountain of pain. They tell us our tears of grief could fill all four great oceans. When our experience is one of pain, hurt, loss or frustration, our usual habit is to draw back in aversion or strike out in anger, to blame or run away. Like pain, fear is the other common predecessor to hate fear of loss, fear of hurt, fear of embarrassment, of shame, of weakness, of not knowing. When fear arises, anger and aversion function as strategies to help us feel safe, to declare our strength and security. In fact, we actually feel insecure and vulnerable. But we cover this fear and vulnerability with anger and aggression. We do this at work, in marriage, on the road, in politics. A fearful situation turns to anger when we can't admit we are afraid. As the poet Hafiz writes, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd rather see you in better living conditions. Without insight, we are doomed to live our lives in this cheap room. We can train ourselves to live with mindfulness, meeting fear and pain with wisdom instead of with the habits of aversion and anger. When a painful or threatening event arises, we can open our eyes to it. When we learn to bear our own pain and face our own fears, we will no longer blame and inflict it on others, whether family members or other tribes. Instead of reacting, we can respond with spacious clarity, purpose, firmness, and compassion as needed. A wise response includes whatever action, fierce at times, is the most caring toward life, our own and others. Isn't that wonderful? And and the whole book is full of beautiful passages like that. It's called The Wise Heart. It's going to be a big, fat book. (laughs) With, you know, uh, really just a a thorough job of covering the whole of Buddhist psychology. So I want to tell you... uh, uh, Sarah gave me this little uh, announcement about things that are going on now in the Bay Area in support of uh, the political situation in Burma. Today I was, as I said, uh, at, the, at this funeral, and so I didn't, wasn't able to go to the rally that was held uh, at Justin Herman Plaza in San Francisco. And Jack was there. There were about 250 people there. They put on saffron Uh, robes you know they made robes in in support of the monks and they carried signs and they walked peacefully down market street and back for about an hour many members of the spirit rock community san francisco and berkeley zen centers and others were there to show their support for the monks and lay people in burma and to protest the violence there were many cameras filming the event this was organized by the buddhist peace fellowship who are also organizing for this saturday which has been declared an international day of action for a free Burma. So this Saturday, and I'll be up in Bellingham, Washington uh, this Saturday at uh, a retreat up there in, in our group there, and, and for sure on Saturday we'll stop our retreat and we'll go on the street and join other people from Bellingham who will be showing their support uh, for the Burmese the- monks. Pardon me? Where is Saturday- the Uh You know what? Uh, It doesn't say, it says this, though. It says, there is also another vigil organized by the Burmese community this Friday from 2 to 6 p.m. in front of the Chinese consulate at Geary and Larkin in San Francisco. www.bpf.org is a good website to check for updates on details of this Saturday event. So that's what to do. It's Buddhist Peace Fellowship, BPF. So that's the website to check. And there may be, uh, there may be, uh, in fact, uh, what I want to do now is is stop talking and let you talk because uh, I see somebody back there waving flyers and there may be other people who have information or perspectives about uh, uh, what's going on around Burma or other things that you'd like to say or comments, questions on the Dharma Talk. So I'll I'll stop here and we have about 10 more minutes. Yeah, do you have something to, to tell us? Could you save one of those flyers for me? Could I have one? Yeah. So he, you've all heard him. He's got flyers with information and website references and so on. Here. It's the same flyer? Yeah. OK. Thank you. Anything that we should uh, talk about before we part company this evening? Yes? I might mention to everyone that the dana basket tonight, the money will all go to the foundation for the people of Burma. Oh, wonderful. Mm. So the Donna yeah. Will be at the door. Yes. Do the Donna baskets, uh, the donations tonight are all going to go uh, toward uh, the people of Burma, organizations to support the people in Burma, not to Spirit Rock tonight. So be really generous tonight with your contributions. Other things to say? I have some announcements that must be made, so don't don't go away too fast. Okay, let me give the closing announcements then. Uh, volunteer needs? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.